This is an SM Media production. Hi folks and welcome to the latest episode of Chronicle, the Rangers journey right here on SM Media. I'm Scott McPike, it's an absolute pleasure to be your host as always. We are now at the stage of 2012 to 2015, what happened when Rangers assets were sold to Charles Green and what followed was three years of utter boardroom turmoil. To join me on this part of the journey, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by from the Sons of Truth. Craig Houston. Craig, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you onto the show. Thank you very much for agreeing to come on. No problem. Thanks very much for inviting me. Um, I'm glad I get one of your happier topics, Scott. It was nice of you to invite me onto this and know maybe a treble season or something. Aye. I mean, we, we, we spoke about that off air and I was I was very honest. I said I've written out many, many podcasts since I started this channel and there's not one like this where it's gave me a permanent sore head just writing it down. Craig, before we get into kind of covering everything in this whole period, obviously you you were involved in it. You were campaigning against the board and things like that. We'll get into that later on. But ten years from this, how how hard is it to look back? Because it's it has taken a long, long time to actually be able to look back at this time and reflect yeah. on just how bad it was. Well, it was it was funny looking back at what actually happened to me personally. I, I put a mask on during all this nonsense, um, and I think I ended up being a good protection for myself. I mean, mm-hmm. state of health, uh, mental health, and physical health. So when we got rid of the bad board, I tried to take the mask off, and it took a wee while to be honest with you. So I very much became a different character through the time. So social media is. Uh, my, my personal choice in social media is um, Facebook, and Facebook pings up anniversary posts all the time, what you were doing six, seven, eight, whatever years ago. And it's incredible sometimes because I think that was me. You know, it might be some, an article in a newspaper or a, a TV interview or something, and it, it, it's like you take the, 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 the cork explodes out and all these memories and emotions come back. Um, and then, you know, you have that night or two and talk to people, you maybe do podcasts or interviews. and talk to people and all these emotions and memories come back and then they go back into the bottle and up on the shelf for another period of time. So, um, aye, it's bizarre for me. I, I, I don't, I, maybe slightly different for me than <clears throat> any, any normal person um, that a lot of these things are in a box and away at the corner of my head. Mm-hmm. And when I bring them off the shelf, there's a lot of them I've got personal involvement with and yeah. I cringe sometimes at the level of information that we were putting out as a you know, as Sons of Truth, how horrific some of it was, yeah. you know? Um, and you think, that, that's, that's what we were 10 years ago, or you know, 12 years ago when these things were happening. Um, and I, it's it's, um, it's it's really bizarre. Um, and, I, you know, I imagine it would be bizarre for all Rangers fans. Um, but because of what is personalised, you know, um, like the, one of the ones that came up not so long ago, and I, I managed to get it out of my head, was the fact that I got a quarter session um Paperwork delivered to me one day where I was getting sued for £100,000. Yeah. You know, imagine the, the situation. How bad was the situation that 
a football club was suing not me, but any fan for for hundreds of thousands of hundred thousand pounds. Crazy. Crazy. And it kind of starts like that when we're going to start this journey, we kind of closed up last the last episode. We looked at the kind of five-way agreement and how that ended up. But we did kind of go gloss over the fact about how Charles Green ended up to to take over the club. Now, if you obviously if you remember, a CVA was always was always off the table. HMRC were never ever going to agree to a CVA. So the assets then became Duff and Phelps to sell and Craig, they gave Charles Green, I would describe, one of the deals of the century because they gave him ex- exclusivity to buy the assets for £5.5 million. Pounds. Now, that included Ibrooks, Murray Park, overall kind of goodwill of the club. Craig, that that to me is crazy to think about that how easy it was for Green to buy these shares because you look at Ibrooks maybe 10 years before that, Ibrooks would have been valued at like 10 times, 20 times that. Mm-hmm. You would think. You would want it makes you wonder now. Obviously, there's things that we need to watch, but for Green to buy that for so low, how how did how do you reflect on that? Well, there was there was a lot of things um, that didn't make sense, and what happened a lot through this story. I would get a wee bit of information and some another wee bit of information six months down the line, and then three months later, so not. That information and then the jigsaw puzzle would all for them eventually. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you must come across things and thinking, well, that's just bloody weird. Um, and, and one of the weirdest things was the day that Craig White got the keys to Ibrox, we played hearts mm-hmm. on, I think it was a Saturday from memory, and there was a there was two photographs. There was one that I referred to as the the um reservoir dogs. 40 and if you think of the Reservoir Dogs poster you've got the five six guys walking up the street and there was photographed of him walking up Anderson Drive the stadium was over to his left school was over to his right and there was five or six people behind him walking in for his first game and that went you know it's a much used photograph in the, the press the next day and uh, and going forward and then there was another similar photograph of the same people in the director's box I think before the game had started they obviously went up to look at the you know the domed and they were just sitting having a bled on somebody took a snap. Well, about three or four of the people that were in that photograph were the administrators that put us into admin a year, whatever, many months over the year yeah. down the line. David Greer, the guy's name. Aye, so, so you, you know, when you, when you, <laughs> you look back, you think, well, why would the guy that was buying a business beginning in day one with the people that actually put it in, you know, done <laughs> the administration? And foolishly, the day that we went into admin, the the um, radio stations were telling us how um, White was charging up the, the M8 to Edinburgh to get into the court session to get his administrators in before yeah. HMRC put theirs in. And I remember at the time foolishly thinking, what a great victory. I'm glad he got there because they might be a wee bit more lenient and better for us than HMRCs that might have sold off all the assets to different people for different reasons. In hindsight, it was, a, it was a, you know, I wish you'd get a puncture halfway up there, mate. It might have saved us all a lot of bother because if you join the dots there, so we had Charles Green, has it for a short time, never even puts a set of accounts out because we're in admin before it was due to get done. Mm-hmm. The guys that walked in the first day we get the business, the keys to the business, are the administrators that put us in the admin who then do a deal with another guy that 
a product like you and I are sitting going in hindsight, well, that was off the cheap. You, so you can, you know, you can join your own dots with me giving my personal opinions and what happened there. You know, it's it, just weird and, and strange. Um, and I do believe that somebody else thought they were getting ownership or Rangers or, or at least the preferred uh, status, so the preferred bidder status, for a £5 million figure. And actually jumped on a plane to come across the Atlantic because they were British-based, but they were over there doing business, thinking that come Monday, I have to just put this £5 million on off, offer in and I'm owning Rangers. Now, I'm quite sure that that was possibly so that it was justifiable Mm-hmm. that they sold it to somebody else at five and a half. Um, yeah, so, you know, there was, there's lots of strange things happening, Scott, um, that uh, people are able to conclude. What exactly I remember, what I remember about the day, the day that Green took over and obviously he, he took the assets, put it into a new coach. Remember Walter Smith and Jim McCall put in, I know, they, they put in some sort of offer yeah. at the time. That was always weird to me, like why at the time, and I know obviously why that wasn't put through, but at the time I remember thinking, why did Smith and McCall not go in earlier? Why, mm-hmm. only, does Jim McCall, we know Jim McCall's very successful businessman, he probably has the money to do it. Why would, Why did he come in that, the day after? And that mm-hmm. was always a thing that stood out to me, and I think we know now why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... Uh... Unfortunately, we can't ask the man to address them, but, you know, Walter Smith's a good judge of character. If Walter Smith told me somebody was good or bad, I would t- tend to take his, his, you know, his work for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think it, plenty of people in there thought for day one, this can't be right. And Walter Smith wasn't in Ibrox until, you know, the, the regime change and stayed away for a long time. And um, that, that, that tells you all you need to know as well. Mm-hmm. The fact that he wouldn't even want to sit in the director's box with these people and watch his beloved team. Um, very significant. Also, as well, kind of once Green Command and everything get kind of settled down a bit in terms of the kind of on-field situation was made a bit clearer. There wasn't an over things did kind of stabilize, especially in the public at the time. There wasn't much of a like. There wasn't many stories going on in the background. Obviously, the only thing that kind of really. Green really did between then and November was kind of bring in Jim Trainer, which I think was a disaster from the word go. Would you agree with that? Um, it was a disaster. I mean, Jim's a, a professional, and he, you know, uh, without getting into current day, I probably would prefer him today in the job. Yeah, oh, certainly than the guy now. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, because he's you know he's an experienced man. His contacts. Um, you know, he could probably kill stories quite easily, you know, because of his contacts, his influence in the press. So it wasn't a bad appointment, but um, it was just bad timing, you know. Bad timing, but also, I mean, there was a lot coming out during that time. Remember the, do you remember the interview with him and McCoy that Christmas? Do you remember that? Basically. It was basically, it wasn't like we saw that earlier we were recording this the week. Uh, John Bennett gave an interview for Rangers TV and that seemed to be very well organised I would say but the, the interview in that time between Jim Trainer and Alan McCoy wasn't it was a, a journalist interviewing a manager and really putting him on the spot it was mm-hmm. it just wasn't overly convincing the reason Green was calming things down is because he was getting his pitch ready for the IPO that was I mean yeah. I very few businesses you'll see will go to market within six months so yeah. that was obviously the, from the word go what he wanted to do alright oh, yeah. and 
Remember the costs and all that? Remember the yeah. AGM where the, we were questioning the costs? And well, I can't remember the exact figures, but on the prospectus, it was like expected cost 200 grand and it turned out to 4 million quid, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody asked the AGM, uh, can you cut these, you know, can you cut these down and tell us what these costs are? And uh, Stockbridge at the time said, no, no, I can't. And the guy said, I actually know the guy now that uh, didn't, didn't at the time, but he's uh, a financial guy from England that asked the question. He says, no, Brian, I'd do what you do for a living. You can answer that question. And what he tried to say was, well, we're a bad risk. So that's why people charge us money. And I was like, but we're a bad risk when you put the perspectives together. Mm-hmm. Our, you know, our, our, our rating, finance rating didn't go down. And, you, you know, you reckoned it was going to cost a few hundred thousand. And it was just all this nonsense stuff. That was, that was early on in, in our campaign. And uh, it was the first AGM, you know, after Sons of Truth was, was unfortunately born. Um, and that, that's money was just flying at the door. I remember one of the reasons that we started was we were things like there was watermelons getting invoiced to Auckland Howie for 10 quid. You know, you know, like who's getting, a, who's getting a cut of that? Who's getting an envelope of that deal? So, you know, there was all this nonsense going on. Madness, man. Madness. When see, when, see, with Green early on, do you remember there was always. There was always, I think, scepticism to who his actual investors were because he would, yeah. he would, you knew, you know as well as me, he would say literally anything. I mean, yeah. all two words, Dallas Cowboys, and he would literally say anything right. just to. Right. And he's a salesman. He's a, yeah. he's good at what he does. He's a good communicator. But I remember very specifically, and you might remember this as well, an interview with Nigel Spackman. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Was an interview with Nigel Spackman, yeah. and he was a Sheffield United manager. Right. I think maybe in late nineties, maybe. And they'd asked him about what this guy Charles Green was like, who was coming in, obviously being a Sheffield United chief executive, and that did not read well. And I remember that. I remember well, specifically that time thinking, "Yeah, that's that's." I think I think Nigel Spackman in hindsight held back. I remember I watching did, that, yeah. that interview a couple of three years after it and thinking he's probably been weary of what he said because. <clears throat> I think if anybody thinks and believes that Craig White and Charles Green. Well, the top of the tree of <clears throat> this bunch of people. I'm trying to watch my words here when I describe them as a bunch of people. Then you're wrong. They're not the top of the tree. And when you find out who was at the top of the tree and you get ideas who was top of the tree, you can probably understand why Nigel Spagman wasn't want to say too much. Mm-hmm. But even knowing that, he was still pretty scathing. And it, you know, he was trying to warn us without getting into too much detail. But Green gets his IPO. He, he... Yeah. He raises twenty two million in the, in a unbelievable kind of deal with the stock exchange, and very early on, like that should have been. If that was, I think, if the Blue Knights, for example, would went in and done an IPO, they would have done the same. They would have done it the same way. They would have went in, tried to get the shares, tried to bring the club back to to good health. But the difference would have been that money would have been reinvested in the club. Yeah. A lot of money very early on seemed to disappear from the doors of Ibrox. Well, we we done an article about it way back, and it was trying to figure out how much money we'd brought through the door. And you know, there was like twenty two million for the IPO. I think it was a figure twenty two or twenty three million. Can't remember how much he got from initial investors, but there was a load of them, and there was a figure like that. I think it was maybe ten million, right? Yeah. And then you're going, well, we've had two series of season books and we've had this and we've had that. And I think the whole thing added up to about between 50 and 70 million. Mm-hmm. We're playing in the third tier of Scottish football at the time. Aye. You know what I mean? We'd as a centre-back. 
you know what I mean? And we, we had managed to spend, I think it was over 50 million. Quid. I mean, we spent more then than we were now. Aye. <coughs> um, and uh, it was just bonkers that we listening. Where did the money go? And uh, we'll, we'll probably, probably never know. And certainly with Craig White era, we'll never know because he never even had to produce a set of accounts for us to look at. Um, but I watermelons at a tenner. That's uh, that's some deal, huh? Aye, and it's craziness like that. Like that, there is obviously that badness about the whole thing, but there's also this kind of weirdly comical nature to it. Like things like that, things like Wi-Fi, things like obviously catering that was going on. There was all these nonsense things going on that it's that now you look back and think that's where Rangers were. I mean, we are we're recording this in this. In 2022, Rangers are Rangers in a group with Napoli, Liverpool, and Ajax. And ten years before that, we're we're seeing them play like I was going away to Berwick and getting boys stuck in a hedge at breaking. And it's just crazy when you look back at like this is where Rangers were, and that felt I, a million miles away. See, see the European run last year. I remember when it started. My son saying to me, "Is this what it used to always be like?" <laughs> and uh, I said, "Son, I mean." Not that long ago, I, I remember going driving to Fife for a Saturday kickoff, and I think I had been in Fife something ridiculous like nine times in three months. I'd never been to Fife more than <laughs> nine times in my life. And you got to Cowdenbeath and all these men are broth and Al. I hated going to Alloa. Alloa was probably one of the best facilities that we visited. I hate every time I went there. I think it was snowing. Um, but, you know that was how the, the story was. It was it's a Hollywood epic. Yeah. That you wouldn't believe if if somebody made it into a Hollywood epic. Mm. It was just crazy. Every day there was something else. Every day there was um, more information coming out, more stories, and you know. There was aye, so much. Aye, there was so thing. much, but the 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 kind of the two kind of good bits of news at the time were obviously the HMRC verdict came in slightly later than we originally thought, but it was ruled that there was. There was they'd not con- contravened any tax law with the use of EBTs. Obviously, HMRC went on to appeal that later on, but at the time that felt like a vindication. It did, and the same yeah. with the Lord yeah. Nemo Smith thing. It felt the this felt like all the people saying that Rangers were cheats. And you remember right. at the time that the newspapers were full of it that Rangers should be. I remember. Do you remember Michael Kelly going on mm-hmm. STV and guys like that going on, and they were just basically bringing these guys out to have a have a pop and. Yeah. This felt like a vindication. I remember very specifically as well, Chris Graham going on STV that night. I remember. Having a wee dig at Spears. Aye. Because it was a vindication and that's totally what it was and it felt that at the time, didn't it? Oh, 100%. I get I get taken on to BBC to do a live thing the night that result came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember, I, had, I didn't know Chris at the time. I was just a rank file yeah. guy and he knew who Craig Houston was when, when he done I, I remember watching that live and thinking, oh, you got a boy, he talks well, he's got yeah. his information lined up. And he's he's up against a professional, mm-hmm. and I think he, he I think he won with the unanimous decision that night, you know, um, and it was it was a great, it was an inspiration to me, if I'm perfectly honest with you. When six months a year down the line, I had to start doing that sort of stuff, and um, we, um, we we were just getting lined. Up. They were, you're right, they were pulling folk off. I just have a go at Rangers, you know. Papers were at it, the news, uh, the the uh, radio stations were at it. The, it was just crazy and it was just boot as boot as boot as we're done and I thought you know what you wouldn't do that in the street and on a fist fight yeah 
people in the street that fight in the street have got better morals than the people that are coming in to have, have a pop at us. What did they want? Would, were they no happy that we, we actually came through the other side? Were they no happy that we were still playing at football that summer? Would they have preferred to have no Rangers in Scottish football? Which, you know, but then you've got a one-horse um, race that it's hard enough to market Scottish football than now, but um, you know, I think I genuinely think there was disappointment with some people that we actually kicked off that season. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely, yeah. I think there's you see it still to this day. There's there's nonsense everywhere. I mean, it's but that's it's the people that were having a dig thought that they wanted the club gone, and mm-hmm. the fact they're still here is the fact that that they've not got their wish, and that is it's bitterness. It's nothing, and we. We spoke about that last week with the with the SPL vote. I mean, if you are if you're telling me that you you would rather you would boycott giving your own club season ticket money in favour of voting, that's, right. that's, that's that right. to me is that to me is the lowest of the low, and I've said that mm-hmm. repeatedly. Now, your but, hatred for us was more than the love for your own club. Correct, and that that to me, I will never ever understand that, and never ever want to. But the thing with this whole thing is this kind of first season in the third division obviously we spoke last week off the park it, on the park it was relatively routine it was it wasn't fun to watch but off the field it was beginning to kind of come to a head a wee bit I mean Green I think people had saw through his bravado I think yeah. and getting into the kind of date that day in April where the the police obviously get involved with we're searching kind of relating to the purchase between White and Murray and obviously that whole the day with the ticket to steal what White had had. We didn't really touch on the ticket to steal, but White was ordered to pay it back. The 18 million he'd got, he'd lost a claim at the High Court. But the SFA then got involved with Green, asked Green about his dealings with White. And this was this seemed to be the day, kind of day it all turned because after that it was, I think, there was a thing with Green, I think, as well. I think people, it's that desperation of you want you want this guy to be a good guy. You want, you want a good guy. And you were seeing it that he was just full of crap. And it was. It was well, just a, I get taken down and invited. There's a football media course done at a place down. Is it Burnley University? It's a football university. Mm-hmm. And I get taken down, invited down uh, by a guy that was a professor at it. Mm-hmm. He's now a director at Aston Villa. Right, and he uh, wanted me to talk to them about fans' movements, mm-hmm. and um, we when we were talking, I said, "Look, I said with the experience I've had now, I could write a book about how to wrap a football club off, mm-hmm. because you turn up and you delete where applicable, and tell everybody that your vision is to get us in the Champions League, stroke the English Premier League, stroke the Championship, stroke the French Scottish." Whatever suits mm-hmm. the agenda, yeah. and you know, you just you get football. And the reason you can do it so easy is football fans, and I know this through personal experience. Football fans want to believe good news, and they want to disbelieve bad news. Mm-hmm. So when this guy that nobody's ever heard of before starts a thing called Sons of Truth on a whim and starts handing out pieces of paper outside Ibrox to folk telling them bad news about the club, they don't want to know. No, the default setting is. We want to listen to the guy who said we're going to be in the Champions League within five and years. That's what, that's what kind of got Murray. That's what kept Murray, like, kept the reputation with Murray for years is that people didn't want to believe that this guy who was feeding them everything was was a, was <coughs> leading the, running the club into the ground. And that was, I remember, I mean, David Edgar said that repeatedly over the years that he said that. I mean, you don't, he, he was the guy, they were the guys telling everybody 
what they didn't want to hear, and you know as well as I do, that's it's impossible. Well, to joke, get it's joke. Ah. The, the, the only you know the same grace with Murray was, you know, um, Murray gave us nine in a row, Gascoigne, yeah. all these things, you know. So at least with Murray, you had you had a bit of balance there mm. that you knew, you know. We all heard stories about the, you know, the the the, um, the metal bills going into when we constructed the club deck and all these things. <clears throat> understood all that, but you always had on the flip side of that, Gaza allowed up nine in a row. Almost every year in the Champions League. All this stuff, you know. Um, um so yeah, and listen, Manchester. So you, but with these guys, we had what? Beaten breaking. Yeah. Did nothing to balance it with. We'd no with no balance. So when the story started coming out and they were bad, they never really had much, you know, they didn't they couldn't say about ah, we brought you Gaza. You bought his Creebery, wow, you know, no. bought his Big Clark, you know, all this stuff, but aye, um, horrific, mate. Get into that kind of the summer of 2013, kind of Green was obviously, Green had resigned, Smith had come in, Walter Smith had come in as chairman to the, the board, and I think almost immediately, as you say, I think he had, he saw right through what was going on, I think, yep. I think he just saw a complete circus. Yep. And, yep. I want to throw some names at you and obviously just what you kind of thought about them in that time. Like, when did you first hear about the brothers from Inverclyde? When did I first hear about them? Yeah. The first day they came in. Um, and it was quite bizarre. I would probably never have known the names of the guys that were mm-hmm. the girls' buses. Bar the fact that a few years before it, my son played for Queen's Park Pro Youth Team. Right. And this boy for Greenock came up for a trial. And his dad would drive up every game with a different fancy motor. Mm-hmm. And he was at the games with me and folk would say, that's the guy that wins McGill's. Mm-hmm. So I don't say I knew him. I maybe said hello to him two or three times as you would at a kid's game of football with a boy that's in trial. Um, but um, So I knew who this guy was. So when the name came out, it wasn't an unknown name to me. And obviously between standing outside the football parts where parents a lot of gossip about other parents, and him coming to Rangers, I, I knew a fair amount about him. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a strange appointment. I didn't think it was maybe that strange and putting money in the club. But when you then put people like I'm on the boards and make up these special boards, because, you know, he's not going to fit, fit in proper tests, so we'll put his brother in that board and put him on the other board. But by that time, I think we were, we were already mobile and, and asking questions, you know. And that's the thing we, I mean, we know... We, we kind of know the stories and we're not going to get into them for obvious reasons, but when those guys come in and particularly Green selling his shares to Sandy, you wonder what that was all about. You wonder... Well, I, mean, so I had that conversation with Sandy Eastdale and Sandy Eastdale's boardroom at McGill's right. um, while they were still a, a, a substantial shareholder. And the reason I went to speak to him was um, I, had, I had a guy who wanted to buy his shares. So I went and spoke to him. I was in his boardroom twice. And I'll be honest with you, see Sandy's Day, I don't think Sandy's Day should have been anywhere near Rangers Football Club as a director. Mm-hmm. And, but, and you know, I mean, the guy sued me for £100,000. I was arrested three, four times without being charged and a couple of them were to do with, with Sandy's Day. So I should maybe hate the guy. But why? I, I actually got on all right with him. I, I had to have a fight. I, you know, I couldn't tell anybody at the time Sandy's deal was not a bad guy because it was dead. It was black and white there. It was Jedi's versus Stormtroopers. It was Cowboys versus Indians. You're on that side. You're an Indian. You're the Cowboys here. Mm. But seeing a different universe with different things going on, if I'd bumped into Sandy's deal some other way, 
I'd have probably quite grown with him. Mm-hmm. He was the only guy in there that paid full money for his shares. Yeah. They took his pants down as well. But when he got in, he was complicit because he made decisions and he was involved in things and, you know, he was suing me for £100,000. All that stuff. So he'd done a lot of wrong things. But I actually can't hate him. I bumped into him at Glasgow Airport a few years after it was all finished and that was, a, that was quite, a, uh, um, quite a, a funny experience. But, um, I, I mean, I think he was doomed. All the rest of them were getting shares between one pence, 20 pence, 25, and, and Sandy paid 40 or 50 or whatever it was. He paid the same as us. Do you think they were just in way over the head? I think Charlie Boy bumped into this guy that had, a, had access to a few quid and thought, he's a victim here. Mm. I could get a sale after him dead easy. And I was in sales for 25 years myself. Right, so I know about, about the game. And it's all about your patch, isn't it? It's all about how you sell it. His patch, he took Sandy and his brother in, sat him in the director's box yeah. in an empty stadium and said, in five years' time, you're going to have a Champions League and it'll be Real Madrid and Juventus were playing. Where'd that sign, right? No. And he got in and he made lots of mistakes. And he knew what was going on. If he was, if, listen, if he was in that building and didn't know what was going on, he's a bit daft or mad he'd credit for, right? Um... But I, and, and, and you know, and I can't remember saying to him that day in his boardroom, I said, you'd actually, they love you. Because see, when this is over, I said, the game's over. The dogs in the street know that the next AGM comes up, you're out. Yeah. So I've got a guy who wanted to buy your shares. And um, my advice would be to take them. Because see if you're the last man in, they'll all bugger off 400 miles away back down to England. You'll still be here because your business, your family's at school, yeah. all that stuff. And your life is not going to be nice. I, I didn't realise was within weeks folk were going to be getting in death threats. I did plenty of them up to that point, but he started getting them. Um, and um, I, I told him, you know, you're, 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 you're their weapon boy. You're, you're going to get it. You're, and they'd love it. They'd love you being here. Um, and I think he got involved and he liked the idea of getting picked up in uh, Ashley's private helicopter and whizzed off to meetings and all that stuff. And he liked the high life and the profile it gave him. It was way, listen, he said... He, He's got a certain amount of success as a businessman and he does things a wee bit different for others, but you know, you can't take that away from him. Mm. But I still think he was out of his league with these yeah. guys. These guys are different level. Yeah. I mean, the name, one name I want to throw at you, who at the time, I didn't think this guy seemed to be a bad guy, but you actually look behind the bonnet and you're like, what on earth is he all about? Craig Mather. Now, Craig Mather Aye. remarkably got a job just by giving the boat, giving the guys money, I mean it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an incredible turn of events. I believe he had a lot to do with some of the transfers as well. Yeah, and he didn't seem a bad guy. He seemed a decent communicator at the time, but the, I think I just think he was he was another guy who just. Oh, he was there in his own pockets. He yeah. was there for Craig Mather, not for Rangers Football Club. Yeah, and that's the issue with a lot of these guys. Yeah, I don't. Do you think there's anybody out of that whole kind of that whole regime? That was really interested in helping the club. There, there was one guy that I spent a lot of time with, and, 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 and unfortunately, I was in his office when people were wanting to take his head off at the door. And it was a night Sandy Jarden passed away, and it right. was Graham Wallace that told me that they'd just got a phone call. Yeah, and, and I and I got I got on well with Graham, but again, you know, he was he was on the other side for us, um, and I think under a different 
time again, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I think he genuinely did want to do mm-hmm. a job, but um, <clears throat> was constrained to a certain degree. And, and, and I asked him openly in his office one day, um, I said, look, I've got to paint you as a good guy and a bad guy, right? People will look to me for my observations of you. I said, now, if you want to tell me some truths here, we can try and protect you a wee bit for the, what's going to happen in the public. But if you tell, I'm going to ask you a straight question and you can answer me whatever way you want. Are you in here trying to do good and others are stopping you? Because if that's the case, there'll be a different personal image, sorry, public image given to you. Yeah. Do you know what he done next? He looked over his two shoulders as if to check nobody was listening mm-hmm. and said, no, Craig, everything's fine in here. And it just, you know, I, I was in sales for 25 years. I didn't study body language or anything like that. But when you're in that industry for that long, you get to understand, when, you know, something odd's happening. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly one of these situations. But again, uh, and a, a funny thing happened. I, I got a message on Facebook off a random guy saying to me, I'm in London now, and guess who's sitting in the restaurant with me? And I went, who is it? And he said, Graham Wallace. I said, oh, is it? I said, go and tell him you've just got a message off me and, and say I'm asking for him and I, I hope he's well. And the guy was like, what? Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, seriously, I said, is that nice? he, was, you know, he, he was always present to me. He would, you know, anytime I wanted to go and speak to him, I, you know, he, he, would, he would be, uh, he was easy to speak to the current board, if I'm perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. And he would um, welcome me and sit down, listen to me, talk to me, and, you know, as a person. And I think, yeah, he's one, you've asked me a question, I think he's probably the only one that, um, I kind of, I kind of always had a feeling at the time that Malcolm Murray seemed to be the right, seemed to know what. Well, to be fair, I don't, I don't, I don't class Malcolm as being in that gang. Aye, but I think, was... I think he went in for the right reasons, but I think, yeah, quickly he was just we. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> by the time we had mobilised, Malcolm had been in and out, Aye. so Malcolm was never on on our hit list, and I got to know Malcolm very well yeah. through the time, and he used to help me with things and things that I didn't understand. I used to be able to phone him and say, Malcolm, what does, what does an IPO mean? For example, mm-hmm. you know, things like, you know, that a fan shouldn't know, and I had to learn pretty damn quick. Um, so I, I don't... Malcolm was a, Malcolm was the same sort of thing as they try to do with, with Walter Smith. To be a face, and I know through personal conversations with Malcolm, and I know what he divulged that, because I don't know how much it would get potentially somebody else into bother. Um there was things being hidden from him. Yeah. And there was things that he would constantly ask that he was never given the answers to and, and given strange answers and all that. So and I don't I don't certainly don't um have him even in, you know, and I don't see him in that that group. Yeah. I mean we'll touch on a couple of guys who really do not have any redeeming qualities at all. Imran Ahmed, David Somers. Imran Ahmed unfortunately didn't have the privilege of meeting that man. Um but when you've got a guy, you know, in the periphery of your club who's on an opposed most wanted, that's never a good starting point. You know, that that's just never a, a great um starting point. And I remember the time he turned up uh, turned up at Ibrox and there was journalist off flying about the tune. And I think it just before that, S- Sandy had said that he'd not had a day with the club mm-hmm. on some interview. And within weeks or months, he's driving them about and taking them for meals in the Regano and up at the training ground and all that. You're like, guys, they're no thick, you right. know. Um, but aye, that, that's not a good look. And the the uh, the Summers one, that that guy, my, my everlasting 
memory of that guy will be the AGM when somebody asked him a question and he gave him the answer, well, when you're the chairman of the Rangers Football Club, you can decide what happens. And you thought, seriously, mate? And, I remember and somebody tried to attack him. Seriously, yeah. but that was the one in the corner uh, where the way end, if you yeah. remember, the way corner. It was just basically just a, it was like a gazebo you would see in a, somebody selling hamburgers at in a scout fair. That's generally what it was like. like seen better, Marquis at scout fairs. And then as they were going out, they had to go up the, the govern front to yeah. get back at the stand and I think somebody took a flyer for them and mm-hmm. quite rightly you know, saying, quite rightly so that's maybe a wee bit harsh you know but you can understand why that happened um, but aye, that was my uh, my everlasting memory I remember him and Bomber even I remember him and my England bias had just come in at that time as well when yeah. Bomber had said something like rats. I hope you're a better quality man than the other rats at that table and that was the feeling among the, mm-hmm. the fans like we could see what these guys were doing Yeah, and it was just like Crazy, but again, I mean, the accounts come out in October, and there's an operating loss of 14 million pounds despite a 22 million share issue. I mean, stuff like yeah. that does not happen anywhere else other than it's either it's either one of two things it's either on purpose or it's just really, really poor. It's only one of the one or the other. But how do you go from that and what was the kind of thoughts when you heard that? And you heard obviously the stuff about like McCoy's wage. McCoy's was in a substantial wage for it, as you say, a third division manager, Green's bonus and things like that. Just there was so much going out the club, and it was just re- mm-hmm. remarkable how quickly it all seemed to just go away. This whole mm-hmm. kind of that that money it just seemed to just vanish off the table. Yeah, and around about that time again, if you think the chronological order. Uh, Ardman Hartman Green comes in a few months after it this guy turns up in your telly this organisation called Sons of Truth and nobody's heard and starts mm-hmm. putting out leaflets and all that stuff and you know, we did get a lot of people angry with us at football matches I remember one guy threatening me at the air one day and I was like well, I, I actually understand it you know what I mean um, but it was things like that set accounts coming out that got people going hold on a minute mm-hmm. And that's where we really started to get a lot of um, support behind us. And you know, when we said we were doing something, we got lots of people turning up and standing beside us. Um, and it was just, and it just became an avalanche of information, poor, poor information. But you know, that 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 to me was quite a sick. I remember walking into the AGM, and it was the main stand up first one. And me and my wee mate Sandy that started Sunderstruth, we were like, "What are we going to do here today?" The expectation is we're turning up with banners and all that. I mean, decided we were going to do nothing, absolutely nothing. And we sat down, and when they get introduced to the stage, I think the the the, the AGM uh, uh, attendees booed for four and a half minutes, mm-hmm. and were screaming at them and all that. And that means Sandy just looked at each other and went, "We couldn't have done. We couldn't have got this reaction if we'd asked them to have. It was just mental." So you know, and the council just came out and all this information. And, and that was a, quite a significant turning point for me because I actually started feeling at that time we have got a lot of people that are getting to put the same mind as us yeah. and are understanding stuff that actually football fans shouldn't be interested in. We should be having discussions in the pub about who's the best right back. Mm-hmm. That's what we should be talking about. But it wasn't that I couldn't get into a pub and I don't think I was any different for any other Rangers fan and you'd be talking about, you know, contracts that came up and... You know, Who's at, what's Ashley's involvement? Has he only got 10% all this yeah, sort of nonsense? Um, 
And but the big turning point was run about that time, that first day GM run about the November. Aye, and that's kind of where King, kind of Dave King, begins to kind of build his is it build his claim? Is that maybe fair to say? Like he's, he begins to rally the troops where he was very obviously he's, he's very close to Christ. What was your kind of first kind of hearing that King was kind of trying to get back? Obviously, he'd, he'd been in touch with Mather and things like that, and with that that story is well documented, but. Yeah. It was obviously trying to to rally the the troops, shall we say? When yeah. did you first kind of hear that Kings kind of really serious I, about I that? I can't remember. I can't remember the, the the dates and things. I'm not very good with yeah, dates. Right. I'm good with chronological order, but I can never really put them you know dates and stuff, years and stuff and stuff. But I got a phone call one day um, to go into city centre and meet Dave King, mm-hmm. and he got um, a load of different people. Uh, you know, for different places, a dozen years in this room, and put his plan. This is what I want to do. And um, I remember <laughs> I just sat down and Midor took a seat, and then Dave came in, and I was actually just sitting to his left hand side, first first seat from him. And he said, "Well, I'm meeting you today. I'm meeting the Rangers board tomorrow. I'm meeting some other people that I thought I've suggested they want to invest and go into this with me on the Sunday." And I'll come back and speak to you on the Monday and tell you how it's all gone. Mm-hmm. And he said, but could you do me a favour? And he turned around to me and he said, could you maybe turn the volume down a wee bit while I'm trying to do this? And I said, Dave, I've got something and you don't know about that I can't control the volume. And he went, what is it? I said, I need to tell you in private. And what it was, I'd been served notice a £100,000 lawsuit against me, mm-hmm. but it wasn't public knowledge yet. Yeah. And I said, no, that could hit at any time, Dave. I can't control this. That'll create a lot of noise. I said, so I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, I think you're wrong because we've done this before with them and we've turned the noise down thinking they were coming to the table with stuff and, the, you know, they've the, the, uh, double deltas and stuff. So I, I don't think we should ever turn the noise down. But you're a man that knows boardrooms better than me and you're going in to speak to these in the boardroom. So I'll appreciate that and I'll uh, take that on board. But I think you're wrong. But if this thing comes out about me getting sued for a hundred grand, that'll create noise that I can't control. And he went, No, that's fine, I appreciate that, and thanks very much. Came back in on the Monday after meeting the book. He sat down, and the first thing he said was apologize to me. And he said, Craig, I asked you on Friday to turn the noise down. And you were right and I was wrong. I've now met these people. They do not deserve anybody to give them any slack at all. So don't let anybody ever tell you to turn the noise down again. Because they're, they're, they're cracks, cranks. And he'd went into the boardroom and spoke to him and thought he was putting a plan together that a normal business would have found acceptable and let him invest in the club at the time and, you know, get some shares and and, and, and put him on the board. But with the reaction he got and, you know, they're making decisions that don't make sense, tells you all you need to know. They didn't want anybody in there mm-hmm. that was in the gang, you know? And I think that's how King was able to was able to get that support because we know this board were, as you say, I think the word you use is probably spot on, but King could play them at their own game. They were bad guys, and I mean that's the nicest possible way, but King could go lower. King could play them at their own game. Mm-hmm. And that's what they just that's what you saw. King could attack them and put yeah. them in the back well, foot. What you've got to remember as well is these guys, most of them are only representing money. Aye. Dave King was representing his own money. Yeah. And to get any sort of wealth, I've been fortunate enough to meet probably three or four people in my life that are at this financial level of Dave King, right? Mm-hmm. 
And in the nicest possible terms, I, I would never say anything bad about Dave King, but they've all strange. And I don't mean strange being bad, I mean different for me and you. Yeah. If we were the same as Dave King, we'd have his wealth, and if he was the same as you and I, he'd be, you know, the same wealth as you and I. Mm. And it's a totally different um, level. And all these people that I've met, they've got this different personality. You know, they've got a different way of thinking, different way of acting. And so Dave King was maybe dealing with a guy, let's take Ashley as an example, with a guy with similar figures and similar amounts of zeros at the end of the bank. But he wasn't dealing with him. He was dealing with the guy that he put in the board. Yeah. So he would have danced rings around these people mm. because he's on a different level. Yeah. Um, you know, he wasn't in a room with, with um, uh, Richard Branson. Mm-hmm. He was in a room with a guy that was representing a guy that maybe had some money. Mm-hmm. Different levels, man. Different, different levels. And he would just... So I, when, 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 when Dave, and Dave, you know, he had that, he was known to the fans and everybody was well documented, the 20 million he'd lost by the Murray time. And, um, you know, he was associated with a successful time at the club. So he was a comfortable, you know, friendly, nice, cuddly name. Safe and, pair of hands. That was, yeah. It was, I, and that I, was the support. The support needed that. The support yeah. wanted somebody in there who was going to do the best for the club. And I think Paul Murray's another guy as well. I think I think there's a big difference between Paul Murray and Dave King. Paul Murray's a lovely guy, lovely guy. But I think the big difference between Dave King and Paul Murray is Dave King, as we say, can really attack, like put the, the board in the back foot. I don't think Murray was ever comfortable doing that. Is that mm-hmm. fair to say? Like, uh, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, Paul's no, no shrinking violet. Um, and he would maybe go about things a, a different way. Yeah. Again, the first time I met Paul, I was invited into a meeting in his lawyer's office. He was wanting to talk to some fans about, you know, some ideas and stuff. And uh, I, I was, you know, very impressed with that. that mm-hmm. Oh, he's an impressive that. guy. Aye, and, you know, I, I still speak to Paul to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not spoke to him for a while, but, you know, I, I met him. He came around. We run a, a, a Sons of Street Football Academy now, and he wanted to see that, and then he came, I think, about two months ago. And... Um, toured them around the, the, the training venues that we had on that night and uh, you know that's how close me and Paul are you know I uh, was impressed from the first time and impressed you know Zeke was impressed but and it, it, you know the mad thing is there seems to be this I'm going to you know, fast forward in um, seven years but there seems to be this thought in some people's minds now that suddenly Dave King and Paul Murray are not good people no you know, and I find that hard. I find that sure I find that astonishing. Like, yeah, yeah. As you, say. yeah. you think when did these two guys suddenly become bad guys? You yeah, know? exactly. And one guy who I think deserves remarkable credit for his just his overall just leadership and this whole thing with Sandy Jarden, and obviously around about the time Sandy passed away, obviously due to cancer, and yeah. just how much does Sandy deserve recognition? I mean, in my well, opinion, to, to, to be fair, be, I, th- I, I think. The, the timing of the whole thing, when, when we started doing what we started, by that point, Sandy didn't have much involvement at all. Sandy right. was working in the club. And obviously, in hindsight, his illness had probably started by then. Yeah. But certainly before Sandra Struth was even a thing and with the Marcy Hamden and, you know, through the administration a few years before, I think, again, it's it's a name, it's, a, it's an idol, it's an icon that people are comfortable with. And you know, if he's saying this, X, Y, and Z. Then you know you, you can take it. You can take that to the bank. Yeah. Sandy Jarvis involved, but I didn't have too much personal involvement with Sandy because I say by the time we were involved, when we were a thing, that you know the Master Hamden and all that had been done, and the fighting fund, had, you know, was already a thing, and 
And unfortunately, in hindsight, it was probably just down to his health. Probably none of us were aware at the time. And, but, you know, Sandy jumped me, you know, uh, the football inside it. He was playing for Rangers when I started going to watch Rangers. And every time somebody mentions Sandy jumped to me, I can vision the programmes that I used to love. Mm. And it was uh, the late 70s, early 80s. It was a red programme with a blue circle and Sandy Jardin coming out of the circle. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean, that was the way it yeah. um, And, you know, that that's the Sandy Jardin that, that I remember, but that Sandy Jardin you talk of with the, the fighting fund and the um, the, uh, the March to Ibro, eh, sorry, March to Hamden, all these things. Absolutely fantastic. <clears throat> and the public name to, to come in and get involved. I mean, I must ask 20 people before I had somebody like Bomber came and supported what I was doing. Yeah. So I know how difficult it is for people to actually put their head above the parapet when they've got a presence and, a, you know, idolised. Um, so, you know, hat off to him. And, yeah, hat off to him. A remarkable human being. But round about the kind of mid-2014, get into the season in the Championship, Mike Ashley begins to become a kind of a power broker in the club. He's... He's a major stakeholder at this point. He's, I think a lot of things are happening around him. I mean, Derek Lombias and Barry Leach have got a whole story about Barry Leach that I'll save for another another day. But when you first hear Mike Ashley's involved, you're, we know how vilified he was at this point in Newcastle, but we also hear the other side of him that he's he's a good businessman. So what was the yeah. kind of thinking with Ashley when you heard he was kind of gaining more power? Well, my whole thing with Ashley... When, when he was one of the initial investors that, 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 that uh, Charlie Boy brought to the table and he thought, well, you know, again, you're a Rangers fan, so I'm just just a thing at the time. I'm just trying to yeah. file him. I'm going, well, that's a guy with a big business. And that's a guy with a few quid. That sounds great. That soon changed, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and probably the, the stuff about Newcastle was probably in the back of our head somewhere, but it was a club that I don't have any. I do now because I've done a lot of stuff with their fans, but you know, I didn't have much feelings for Newcastle, so I wasn't totally aware of the ins and outs yet. Probably knew that some of them were happy with him uh, and was quite happy to dispel that when he's turning up at our club as an initial investor. But then when you fast forward and you start looking at you know, how much we're getting or no getting, 40, 50 grand a year for a kit and all that sort of nonsense, um, then you, know, you soon find out who the real Mike Ashley is. And that guy doesn't care about anything else in the whole world apart from Sports Direct. That's it. That's where his passions end. Yeah. I mean, we'll touch on it later on when obviously the kind of coup takes place, but the thing that I obviously want to get your thought, thoughts on was the, the kind of boycott, the kind of the part you played in that and getting fans to kind of make that leap that this, this needs to, for the benefit of the club, you need to stop giving these guys money and it's going to yeah. I mean, you and I have—I mean—we've grown up fans of the club, and there's nothing better than going to watch a team play football. But at that point, it wasn't—I mean, the on-field stuff wasn't enjoyable. But off the, you knew where, where your money was going off the field, and it was just that. How Listen, did you kind of make that journey? People like to rewrite history. Mm. People like to water over stuff and. I laughed when I read the, the, the chairman's notes in the last EGM notes to tell you about the current board about how they wrestled regime change from 
the old board. And, you know, it's, 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 it's fortunate as we have to have these people that are Rangers fans and have put money into the club. Not one of that board wrestled anything for anybody. Yeah. The three people that wrestled the club from the old board are John Gilligan, Dave King and Paul Murray. Yes. Okay. But the biggest single thing that got them in that position, regardless of what anybody wants to tell you, was that boycott. Mm-hmm. If we didn't boycott to the levels that the Rangers fans did for that the, the season ticket renewals, we might have been in the admin before we get rescued. Because mm-hmm. I strongly believe that was the end game for that the second thing. Right? So we had to do it, and we had to do it pretty damn quick. Um, and I believe that was the single biggest factor in getting regime change. And I get emotional talking about it because I think the year before it had 40,000 season ticket holders. Mm. And on renewal day that year, it was 16,000. Yeah. Now that, see when we came up with this mad idea, and chronologically what happened, it was a bit bizarre. We used to plan protests and stuff, and we used to go to a hotel on the south side of Glasgow called the Ivory. Mm-hmm. So the usual suspects would be there and there'd be guys for the UB, there'd be guys for the Rangers Supporters Trust, there'd be guys for this group and that group and influential people that I'll no name because, you know, don't know them whether they want to say they were part of this or not and some of them very well-known people. And we would all sat around the table around there and I'd go, right boys, I fancy doing a card display this week of that, that game there and this is my idea and everybody would have a bit of input and we'd eventually come up with some plans. And we were sitting at one one night and it was the exact same people every meeting. And I can't remember what we were wanting to do, but we were planning something. And I said, guys, you're for the Union Bears. You're for the Supporters Trust. You're for this group. You're for that group. You're Sons of Truth. It's the same people when we're doing everything under the name of Sons of Truth. Mm-hmm. And the referendum was just starting to be a thing and talked about. And it was a play on words. I said, why don't we start putting things out as the union of fans? But the same people saying the same things. Yeah. But it gives it some... Because sometimes the board were going, I mean, whose sons are truth? There's only two of them, right? Nah. It'll give us a wee bit more credence here. And one of the first things we discussed as, you know, the same people that were in this room, the next week we just started saying, what we decided was things that were sort of businessy and, biz, you know, shares and stuff, we'll put statements out as, as union of fans and Chris Graham will be the spokesperson for that most of the time. And when it's get it right about right and about them, it'll be Craig Houston going as Sons of Truth, right? Mm. But it's the same folks saying the same thing. One night we decided that we were going to start asking Rangers fans not to buy their season tickets this year. So it was well in advance of this, the, the renewals coming. And we looked at the positives and the negatives. And then this was actually my first. I think met Dave King by this point. A couple of days after that meeting. A phone call for somebody saying Dave King wants to do this. And my initial reaction was, well, we had put in plans and made statements we were going to have a press conference as the union of fans to sell this idea to the Rangers fans. And we were getting all that lined up. And I said, well, that's great. We'll carry on doing what we're doing and we'll do the press conference on the Thursday. And Dave King can come in on the Friday supporting this. Mm. I said, I think that'll work better because it's the fans that are leading it, not a single person leading it. And he supports it fully and blah, blah, blah. But then somebody sat me down and spoke to me about the finances involved in doing what we were about to do. And there was hundreds that needed, right? And from that point of, alone, we decided to do it reverse. 
Mm-hmm. And Dave King would launch this, don't buy your season tickets and donate the money, put the money into this account, we'll hold it and all that. Just, because there was a lot of money involved in doing that. And Dave King's got, a, you probably understand, he's got a few quid more than me. So that's how the thing was sold to the public. So Dave went out on the Thursday, whatever it was, and done his big presser. And then we've all but battered in supporting it on day two. So it was always a fan-led thing. It mm-hmm. turned into a Dave King thing. And I don't have a problem. I don't, I mean, I'm sure Dave King wouldn't have a problem, you know, in height, now that we're, you know, four or five years up the road for Sorry, seven or eight years up the road for Um, But that's how it happened. So when you factor in that that was a group of fans that decided to, to do this thing, but we still didn't know how many folk would get into it. And what we started doing there at the time was saying to folk, look, see if you genuinely don't know what to do. Because... I had sat in the same seat since I was eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. And we used to have four seats. It was me, my dad, my grandfather, and my grandmother. Just got that. These seats now we've got two, and it was just me and my dad. He's passed away now since as well. So at that time, those seats were very emotional. I had a real yeah. emotional attachment to my seat. So I thought, yeah, it's going to be a big ask. And we're never going to get everybody to mm. not do it. But we need to get enough people. Yeah. That means they need money, and they can't, you know, they need to get in, you know. And... It was it was phenomenal, and we were getting we had a lot of people in iBooks that are Rangers fans that were buying into what we were doing. So you know we were getting a lot of help with some information, and we were getting fed the ticket office renewals numbers, but we weren't hundred percent sure because we would be hearing oh by the way they're only at ten thousand now, but Rangers would put out a statement saying they're flying they're at twenty two thousand already right yeah, so there was a bit of uncertainty. I didn't think they were right, and I thought we were right. And then it was about two days before <clears throat> the season ticket renewal date, and my phone, we just spoke about him, my phone came up, uh, Graham Wallace. And I went, we're right. We're right. Before he even answered the phone, I knew we'd won. Mm-hmm. Because if Graham Wallace, if they, <clears throat> I think they were suggesting 30,000 at the time, and we were suggesting about 14,000 at the time. Mm-hmm. If they were right, he's no phoning me. Exactly. So as soon as my phone rang that day, I answered it and I went, Graham, your figures are right, aren't they? What do you mean? I went, why are you phoning me? You're not phoning me to tell me you've got 36,000 season tickets, so you need me for something now. Mm-hmm. What is it? And we were all invited into a meeting that turned into a bit of a disaster anyway. But that single thing, and I couldn't, I was so emotional like that. You're talking about twenty-five to 30,000 people have done exactly what we asked. Yeah. And I, I know how bad it was. And my dad, I, I couldn't even discuss it with my dad because I thought I don't want to be in that position. I never told anybody not to buy a season ticket. What I done was I said, I'm not buying one. Could you do the same? Mm. That's different for telling people. And I, and I didn't want to have that conversation with my own father. Um, and I remember coming in and the renewals used to come through the post. And I went in to see him one day and he, he says, stick that up there, son. You tell me when I have to um, open it. So what do you mean? He says, my season ticket, you know. I said, you've not opened it? He says, no. You just you tell me when it's safe to open it. I said, you're not buying your season ticket this year, Dad. He says, how can I, son? How could I buy mine when thousands of people exactly. are doing what you've asked them? And, you know, and that, that, that to me was the biggest factor in getting regime change. And the fact that it was done with tens of thousands of Rangers supporters will, will live with me for a dying day. Mm-hmm. Just, it, it was amazing. The 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 um 
the amount of people that were able to do it. And then God, God bless every one of them. It was yeah. difficult. And everybody would have their own emotional ties and reasons why it was a difficult decision. But every single one of the people deserved all the praise in the world. And obviously that as well, that the fans played a colossal part in this. And But the EGM, the, the campaigning to get the EGM as well, how can I have was that to really get people to to go that this is the way we need to go we need to get this this way because it's a hard thing you remember how toxic that AGM was in December at that and that mm-hmm. gazebo nonsense but that I remember specifically like like Paul Murray was, was getting interviewed that day and they were, they were saying like we need to do that we need to get these guys out and it's hard to get people to make that journey because they just want the best for the club but you can see right in front of your eyes that these guys are, are out yeah. to hurt you. And the likes of Paul Murray, Dave King, John Gallagher, those three in particular, all they want is the best for the club. Mm-hmm. How hard is it to kind of get the get people to campaign to go, right, we need an EGM, we need to get this through as quickly as possible? You know, you're asking how hard it was. The campaigning was actually harder at the start than it was at the end. Right. Because... Everybody had a journey to go from thinking Charles Green was a good guy mm-hmm. to sack the board, right? Yeah. My journey from that point to that point was maybe three or four months. Some people it was two years, some people it was a year. So everybody's journey was different. To I think when we got there, you can never see every Rangers fan agreed on it because you'll never, you know, that amount of people's a, a number you could never get, you know, put a number on. And I don't think any single topic would ever get 100% of them. So you, it was never all the Rangers fans. And I, quite, I learned that quite early and I thought, we don't need to get everybody on board. We just need to get enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you know, every day and month and uh, every day and week and month went on, more and more people were getting a similar mind. So the stuff we asked folk to do at the end was far easier than the stuff we were asking folk to do at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the first things we boycotted was 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 the the um, the, the kit. You know, don't buy off them. Here's the figures <laughs> for making the three pence out of ten or something. Yeah, exactly. Crazy figures. And that was difficult. But again, you know, you get an emotional thing and you know, if you've got kids and you've got guys that just automatically spend £200 a year buying with three strips and three heat to toe. And again, we were never going to make that figure zero, but we made a, enough of a difference to, 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 to have him rethinking. Um, but that was probably harder than the things that we were doing two months up the road. Mm. You, you understand what I'm saying? So yeah. by the time it got to the end, it was the, the dogs in the street wanted them out. No, and can I get to that stage, kind of towards March, where an AGM is obviously coming, but Somers and Easdale, uh, James Easdale, resign. Do you think they obviously must have saw the writing in the wall because they knew the fans were, they knew they were getting a vote, and they they didn't have much of a much in the way of support. The fans were, the fans hated them. That was simple. They absolutely hated them. Giant, they saw they must have saw the writing in the wall. Oh, 100%. When Giant they saw the writing in the wall from though, Giant they it got to a stage where because you remember, I mean, we speak about Green, that ridiculous interview he did with Jim White. Remember he's in the hospital bed. That's yeah. that's Chuckles at his best. That's the Chuckster going, Feel sorry for me, I'm in the hospital. When I think was a close was a close that day was to get arrested or something. Right. I'll, I'll let you into a wee secret, right? I'll give you a wee bit of a scoop, right? That's never been public knowledge. I'll tell you how that came about. I started it, right? I had... Charlie was never away. See that shite you resigned? Yeah. Charlie was always playing it for the bag. Charlie was over in America trying to sell to Americans 
Because if you sell to Americans, there's a, there's a normal business practice over there where you sign that bit of paper saying you'll never disclose anything about the old regime. So selling us to the Americans at that time would probably be not a bad thing, right? Yeah. And But this was a guy that had resigned six months before, by the way, that was in America selling Rangers. I was getting told every time he went in an airport. I was getting told every time he checked into a hotel. I knew exactly where that man was almost every day. Bizarre, right? And then it stopped. And I didn't know where he was. And I thought, I tried to get to know people's head to try and understand the way they think, right? And and I thought, see if something bad comes out about him. He's, his character wouldn't let him let it lie, mm-hmm. right? So I started a lie in a myth. And I phoned him, mate, I know. The guy who was a coach for us at the time. I was like, I phoned. Anyway, I phoned us. I said, there's a favour, you on follow, follow. Aye, you on Twitter. Aye, you on Facebook. Aye, one day's a favour. Go and stick out. And it was a half-truth, right? I knew they were starting to get the paperwork ready for it. Yeah. I said, go and put out the Charlie boy's getting arrested today. <laughs> oh, is he? And I went, no. I said, but watch what happens next, right? And he's like, see, so I go to a guy to start a rumour that Charlie boy had get to the neck, hoping... I couldn't put it out because I've me put it out. I had to have, you know, if I'd got known to be telling lies and talking shite, we would have lost a lot of people that had believed in us. So yeah. I couldn't put it out, right? So I got it, put it out. And by tea time that night, fucking what wonders. There's Charlie Boy, I went, right? He's in London now, right? And that was it. So, aye, that, that was how that's, mate, it was, and that was just sort of shite I'm telling you about. Things that are in a box away up there, I aye. forgot a ton until. You start talking to me and ask me about, you know, it's Charlie. And, and I've never shared that story publicly, by the way. So you got a wee scoop there. It was, and I remember <laughs> somebody who, again, will remain nameless because he's very famous, phoned me that day. And he's like, I've heard a rumor that he's getting a neck. And I went, calm down. I started that. And he's like, what? <laughs> I started that rumor. It's nonsense. What did you do that for? I said, I might find out where he is. Phoned me up an hour later. And he went, You played that a blinder, big man. Um, sorry, I'm digressing, and that's that, that's, that's an interesting point because I mean, you look at that, you watch that interview, and I watched it. I watched it today actually just to to get get it back in my head, and you just he's he's playing the he's playing the victim. That's what he's doing. And he's wanting people to believe that. I mean, he comes out and says that Mike Ashley's the best. Nobody on earth is going to fall for that, and it's just ch- the chucks that he's bet. He's just he's he's wanting to sell. This guy that he's brought in, and he's just a just a poisonous individual. I think he's the worst character of this whole story, in my opinion. There's another real thing happened that night. Somebody else famous phoned me, right? <laughs> and I was like, I said, you know what? I said, I mean, I forgot about this. It's funny. He said, I said, you know what? I'm raging it. And I went, right? I said, ah, Jim Wright's giving him a, an easy interview. He's no getting uh, in about him. And he's, he's given him. It was on the news. It was every 45, 30 minutes or something on Sky that night, right? And I was sitting, my dad was alive at the time. I was sitting in his living room and I'm talking to this dead and well-known guy. So my dad was sitting, his jaw dropped, thinking he's talking to such and such, right? So I came off the phone, my dad's, I was at such and such. I went, hi. I said, but, but this guy, I said, I'd love to give that Jim White a bad piece of my mind. And he says, well, phone him. I says, I don't have Jim White's phone number, right? And he says, well, I'll give you right, and I'm going. This is potty. So he sent, he texts me, Jim, Jim, Jim White's mobile number. He's still working. I'm watching him live on the studio in Sky, right? And my, my dad and my dad's living room. 
And I've said, Jim, my name's Craig Cruz, and you might not have known me, but I, I run Sons of Struth. Um, I've done some interviews for your station at the time, so you might have heard of that. Um, can I talk to you if you don't mind? <laughs> so, he finishes his shift, and within 15 minutes, I've saved his number as Jim White. My phone shows Jim White. <laughs> and I'm like, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, hi Craig, Jim White here. How can I help you? <laughs> right, I'm buckled. Right, I'm on the floor. Mate. I'm scrubbed. I've lost it. Right. Anyway, he said, "Hey, can I help you?" I said, "Listen, Jim. I said, see that swine you've just gave to us there. I said, he's a dirty two-faced liar, and you've pandered to him. I said, but gonna do me a favour to repay my faith in you. He says, yeah, what's that, Craig? If we can do it, I'll help you. Right. I said, um, see when he does get arrested, because it's not that far away. Could you do me a big favour and put up that wee three seconds of him saying to you today in that hospital bed, I'm not getting arrested because I've got news for you. It's coming to his door and it's coming to his door pretty damn soon. Rest assured. Okay, Craig, lovely to talk to you. See if I can do that, right? I'm in knots, right? I'm in the flare. My dad's like, I'm like, what's he phoning you for? So I text him. And, you know, see when you consider that story, that's how bizarre the whole thing was. Yeah. There was a guy like me that nobody knew the name of two years before it, having Jim White phone him, because mm-hmm. somebody even more famous than Jim White gave me his phone number half an hour before it. And you're like, why is going You know, <laughs> oh, sorry, mate, that was a... No, that was, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. I have a great impression as well. It's, it's an it was all right, aye. That was good, actually, aye. I, I, I look forward to listening to your podcast, but <laughs> I can see if I can pull off a Jim White. Hi, Craig, Jim White here. Oh, brilliant. When the good guys eventually get the get the EGM and just remember everything about that day, just felt monumental. That what was the yeah. kind of memories of that day? If you can look back on that day and just think of what your to, overall memory memory was. Well, the first thing was going to the the, um, the EGM, and I had loads of people saying, "Can I pick you up?" And I went, "No, I wanted to walk Paisley Road West mm-hmm. like I did in a match day." And I wanted to do it myself. There was never any doubt that it was it was it was only going oh, that way. The, the dogs in the street knew that it was always yeah. done before the AGM opened up. And we all, you know, we all had the information mm-hmm. because we knew the voting patterns and we knew who was doing what, right? So I, I wanted to take it in. To me, it was a bigger victory than nine in a row. Mm-hmm. It was that important to the club. Yeah. And so I wanted to go to Ibrooks that day. Um as if I was going again. Mm-hmm. So I walked to Ibrox, and when I got there, um, it was quite humbling because the amount of people that wanted to, strangers, I don't know who they are, come up and shake my hand and pat me in the back. And I was like, I always find it difficult because I always, my, 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 my stock answer is, I've never done anything myself. I was maybe just loud. But if, like this, you know the the, the the strip boycotts and the season ticket boycotts, if, if thousands of people are, remember the Hearts game, the crowds outside Ibrox that night are mental. Yeah. With people putting up, you know, bat, uh, you know, red flags and red blue cards, uh, red card and blue card displays. Thirty thousand people holding stuff up. But these people hadn't done that. Maybe not got, you know, the result that we all wanted. So uh, you know, it's quite emotional when anybody wants to pay a compliment, and especially such important thing as that. And then the AGM was, was I can't even remember it. I genuinely can't even remember it. And then I came out and um we um again there was just people, total strangers, 
old women, young girls, guys in their 60s, boys in their 20s. And I've done what I'd do after a game. I walked to the, the Paisley Road in reverse and I went to the district party to wait for the results to win it. We knew. Mm-hmm. We just wanted them um, finalised. One of the most bizarre things, Scott, that ever happened. There's a guy, Monty, that, that runs an Ixdale bus. And he was in the pub. The pub was stowed. Mm-hmm. You know, so loads of people had helped with the, the campaign. And we know that the result's just about to come up on Sky. So I'm standing. Everybody's watching the screens. And Monty came up and patted me in the back. And he went, Craig, there's an elderly gentleman over there wanting to talk to you. I went, I ain't bothering me, but this result's just about to get declared. And he went, no, Craig, you're not listening to me. Go and talk to that old man. And I thought he meant just to show him a bit of respect because his age, his seniority. And I thought, why is he so... Give me, two, give me 30 seconds to this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I'm looking at Monty and I'm thinking, Monty knows the game better than me. I, Monty was a great help because, you know, through all the, the, the stuff that we've done. Anyway, so I walked the line to the bar in the district bar, and there was this old man, and I said, um, "How you doing, sir? My name's Craig Houston. Um, my friend said you would want to talk to me." And for the life of me, I'm trying to remember his name. I'll remember it thirty seconds after uh, this call finishes. I can't remember his, his Christian name, but his surname was Struth. Right. And he was his nephew. Right. Okay. Wow. And he was five, and he came to the AGM. And he, he said, man, tip of my tongue. It wasn't Bill Struth, but yes, he said, man, Bill Struth. And I went, Struth? As in Bill Struth? He says, yeah, that was my Uncle William. No, my heart just went. Yeah. And see, that's exact moment, Scott, the pub erupted. Is mm-hmm. the result came through? Right? It was the freakiest, most bizarre event. The timing of it. Mm-hmm. The, what it meant and I was just like wow wow and I said look sir I says I picked your uncle's name for an organisation I started I says and I've done a lot of things in the last few years I said so could you take my personal um, apology and sincerest apology if I've ever done anything to you know that wasn't it, keeping me your, your your uncle's name and he says don't worry about that at all Craig he said every one of your truths are delighted with everything that you've done it's brilliant the end, subtitles, mm. finished. And that yeah. was it. Um, bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. So right, that was my... Uh, my and you can possibly forgive me for forgetting the bit in the middle. That's and then amazing. I got absolutely smashed. Right, right. quite right. <laughs> quite right. That's, a, that's an amazing story. It's, that's great. it's great how you, you can remember it that way. But the kind of final point before we kind of reflect on your kind of personal kind of contribution and things like that, how bad was the club? See when see when the, the good guys walked in to Ibrox, yeah. how bad a state was that? Uh, right, well, I, I'll tell you, there'll be three different levels of how bad it was. There'll be the how bad it was that was made public. Mm-hmm. There'll be the how bad it was because I found out other stuff that maybe it wasn't in the public domain. And then there'll be the level that only ever the directors of Rangers Football Club will know me. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I know without any insight how bad it was. Mm-hmm. The building, for example, hadn't been touched in nearly a decade. Yeah. I don't okay. think it was office chairs either, was that? Right? Oh, they, 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 they didn't spend any money. Yeah. You know, they, they, they went through a lot of money, but there was mm-hmm. nothing to show for it. So that can only drive us to decide, you know, without leaving ourselves wide open for lawsuits. 
potentially, you know, where did this money go? Um, the, the building was terrible. Every contract was in the favour of the, the other end. No us, you know, we were tied up with litigation and sports direct stuff. And there was a thing that I um, I made public. Um, I, I, I think I got arrested for this one, but never charged. I, I got arrested for uh, um, allegedly um, internet theft of an email. And I put out an email. Sorry, that's what it was in the email. I was going to tell you a story about that. Was a, that was a, a summer's email that I had that was correspondence between him and Ashley saying, basically, you better hurry up and do something here, Mike, because if no, it'll look stupid as um, refusing Dave King's offer. Which was interesting because Summers told everybody that he was an independent director. Mm-hmm. But he was giving his, and taking instructions. So I had this email and I put that out. That was the, the, the thing I was going to tell you. I, so I put some, another document I, I, I uh, became owner, owner of and it was signed weeks before that AGM. And it was a 10 year lease on our shop at the stadium for a pound a year. Now they done that on the way out. Mm-hmm. And that'll, you know, if they'd done that with that thing, you'd common sense would yeah, suggest that they'd done that with, with everything. Um, so that's what I'm saying. There was a level of stuff that everybody would know about. There's a level of stuff, other stuff below that, that I would come across. And then there's the truth, which would be even lower that's again. Yeah. So, aye, um, horrific, mate. Absolutely horrific. Looking back, we spent a, we spent a wee while going through it all when. I mean, there's so much and there's so much bad. But yourself, I mean, the first the first person I wanted to get on to talk about this was was yourself because the part you played in it. And how, how do you feel? How, when I kind of ask you here, like, what part do you feel you played in it, and how grateful were you that you managed to kind of bring forward regime regime change in a way? Well, as I said to you earlier, I, I put a mask on, mm-hmm. right um, through it. So when you say things the way what you've just said, the first feeling I get is who's he talking about, mm-hmm. right? Um, because I've done so much with this mask on that I became a character. And the guy that you've seen in TV and you read in newspapers and you've seen standing outside I to a megaphone, that wasn't me. That was this thing that I had to, I had to uh, become. So... It's strange. I find you know I find it difficult to take any plaudits for anything because one, I think that's just human nature. You know, mm-hmm. Scottish people are not very good at taking credit for stuff, but also because of this thing, I became almost schizophrenic by design. Is probably the best way of describing it. So it wasn't me; it was him, right? Um, <coughs> and that probably helped my sanity through it. But as I said earlier, I've got a stock answer that I never done anything alone. I maybe was loud and I maybe come up with ideas and I was maybe push, push, push. And sometimes I was really good at pushing a wee bit over the line, especially when Rangers directors at the time were concerned. Um, but, you know, if Craig Houston didn't have anybody standing beside him, it would just have been a noise. Mm-hmm. It would have achieved nothing. So I didn't do anything alone. Um, and I was maybe loud and I was maybe brave, you know, when you factor in, I had my life threatened, I was sued for 100,000, I was arrested, I had ashes at my back door, I had vans outside my house at three in the morning and all these things. So to get through that, you know, but, you know, there's a fine line between being brave and being stupid. 
Um, but again, it wasn't me being brave because I had this mask on. It was that other guy. Um, Craig Houston couldn't have got through that. I would have been finished after two or three months um, with the pressure that I, I was getting. That, uh, probably not a lot of people out there or other um, fully appreciate what, what I was personally going through at the time. It was lots of, uh, it was coming at me from lots of angles. But um, aye, so I, I, what did I do? I don't know. I, I, I obviously, I, I had information at the start and I started getting more and more information and I was brave enough to share that with the Rangers fans. That, I've done that. That's, that's a, you know, I, can, I can understand that part. Um, people say I galvanised the support. I, I, I was a leader. I don't. I never gave myself these titles. I just done what I done, and I'll tell you why I done it, Scott. The night before administration, I had a pal who was an ex-football hooligan, mm-hmm. and I wasn't friends with him through Rangers. I was friends with him through coaching kids football out in Canvas Lang at the time, and I phoned him up the night before we went on the admin. So that would have been the thirteenth of April, two thousand twelve. And I said, Sandy, see if we needed a mob together tonight. How many of your boys could we get together? And he went, I don't know, 40, 50, 25, 100. That depends what it is. I said, well, do you think it's fair to say that that boy White's not telling us the full truth? There's something going on that we don't know about. He went, I think that's fair to say. I said, well, I've got a mad idea. I want to turn up at Ibrox tonight and I want to get Bladders or the blue gates, and I want to go in with as many folk as we can, and we'll handcuff ourselves to the the the, um, uh, the dugouts and then the enclosure, and we'll phone the papers and the, you know the TV, and we'll say we're no moving until somebody comes out of this building and tells us what's going on because they're telling us lies. Mm. There's something that's no right. Well, Sandy Chuck's one of the biggest nutters I know. Well, he's no big, he's about four foot, nothing, but you know what I mean? He's, he's crackers about, right? Love him to bits. He's like a brother I've never had, but he's potty. And he said to me, big man, you're half your effing nut. I went, what? He went, do you think I could get 50 football hooligans to climb your... And I went, well, it's the only way. I, I couldn't get numbers up. And he went, you're half your nut. And that was the end of the call. The next day, we went in the admin. Now, if we had done that that night, Nothing would have changed. Mm. We would still have been the admin the next day. Yeah. It would have achieved zero. But what it would have done, it would have took away the guilt that I've got, and I know a, a number of other Rangers fans have got, that we actually done nothing to help prevent admin. So that's the only benefit we'd have got if that mad pal of mine had said, aye, that's a good idea, let's get 50 lads out and tie ourselves in. So what happens next is you get the news the next day, Get him for work, phoning my mate, we're all in tears, we're all can't even believe it. I went to meet him and I went, Sandy, how much are you inside now wishes we'd done something once? It changed nothing, Scott. But we wouldn't, I felt guilt, I was riddled with guilt. Mm-hmm. And the two years made a pact that night that if we ever, ever felt bad about what was happening inside your football club, we would do something. Mm-hmm. Now, if we'd done something and it had no impact whatsoever, at least it would have taken away a bit of the guilt of doing nothing previously. If we didn't have that conversation in the 13th of April, Sons of Truth would never have happened. Mm. Because Sons of Truth happened to stop me and Sandy Chug feeling guilty if something bad had went on after it again. It's bizarre, isn't it? So um, that's why i done what i done. It was driven through guilt. And then 
By the time you start that ball rolling, we, we, we got some leaflets printed and started handing them out at the matches and thought, this will last a fortnight. And it just evolved. And then we didn't even have a name. And we thought, Facebook, right, we'll get one of these Facebook things. And I was sitting, and it, that would be what they call the page, and I was like, oh, I don't know. And the spirit of Shankly was in my head for some reason, which was SOS, and I thought, well, that's quite appropriate. Yeah. Struth, Jesus, what, 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 what more, um, you know, when you're wanting to talk to people about dignity and respect and all these standards? Sons of Struth. It just, it was as quick as that. And right, okay, so I'll start this Facebook, Sons of Struth. And we thought it would be a fortnight. But it caught our imagination enough people. So I think I could possibly accept praise for starting the thing, as in Sunder Truth. I wouldn't have been the only person at the time that was asking questions in, you know, pubs and clubs or pals talking and working stuff. But we'd done something about it. But we had no plans of grandeur, we had no illusions of grandeur. We just thought we would do it for probably selfish reasons to stop us feeling guilty if it, it went bad again. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the snowball effect, and it just got bigger and bigger. And then Sandy had some, unfortunately, some private things, personal things that were going on at the time. And it got left to me. And um, don't get it wrong, there was there was sometimes some real dark times that I needed help and some stuff that we needed to do that um, people will never know about because <laughs> there's just some things are best left unsaid. Mm-hmm. Um but we've done a lot of things that we didn't publicise. Let's put it that way. And Sandy, because Sandy's background was able to help me a lot of these things. So although it was me that done 80-90% of it, I tell you something, see the 10% Sandy Chug done? Arguably, as important as 80 or 90% I've done. Yeah. Um, and in me mind, it was probably better because it has passed as well. You know, he was an ex-football hooligan, he'd been in jail and, and, and all these things. It was probably... If we were to plan it with a PR guy, they would have probably said, you take a back seat, son, and you that nobody knows has to front this up. But that wasn't why we done it. It was circumstances, you know, that led to that. Um, so, I, you know, I could possibly accept a bit of praise for that. that, that I could handle that. But the other things, and, you know, I, I find it difficult to accept praise. But, again, there's, there's no this mask. And, and I, I forget half the stuff we've done, Scott, as I keep saying to you, you know, I couldn't, somebody wrote a book. There's a book out there by Craig Coast, and I didn't write it. It was ghostwritten. Um, and it probably tells about 15% of what went on, and it's quite a thick book. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, we, we, nothing would have happened without tens of thousands of people buying into and getting to be the same thought as as, as we, we were from day one. Yeah. Craig, it's been absolutely a pleasure to talk to you. I've really appreciated you coming on. Thank you very <laughs> no much problem. indeed. No problem. Well, listen, thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, I hope I've gave, gave your listeners some <laughs> pleasure in my, my tales of woe. Um, and uh, just finish off, thanks very much for the invite. I've enjoyed the experience. I brought up some memories that I had put in my books up there. Um, some of them pleasant, some of them not so pleasant. But I just, anybody that's listening that didn't buy a shirt or didn't renew their season ticket or stood and held a banner or put up a card, thank you very much because regime change when they happen without you.
Yeah, absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear your story and kind of reminiscing these days. But on the next part of the Rangers journey, we will look at the new era. Ibrox. What happened when regime change took place in 2015 and Mark Warburton came in as the club's new manager and Rangers got back to where they belonged, the Scottish Premiership. Thank you very much to Craig for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you very much to everyone that tuned in. Please subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channels and follow us on social media and follow us for the next part of the Rangers journey. Okay.